The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to MBC this week. It's a privilege for me to be back here this year and to have the opportunity to share God's Word with you. This is the first of several sessions uh, that I'll be with you this week, uh, this morning, and then uh, every evening, Monday through Friday. And uh, what I want to do is take us into the Gospel of John to consider the signs, uh, some of the signs and some of the discourses in John's Gospel. And in order to set that up, uh, I want to deal with the prologue to the Gospel of John, which is, without doubt, one of the most remarkable passages in the Gospels, and equally, with it being so remarkable, one of the most challenging. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, because He was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The prologue of John's gospel is cosmic in its scope. And uh, very often when we recommend that a new believer or a skeptic goes to read John's gospel, um, they are confronted immediately with this most remarkable of all claims that the Scripture makes about Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is take a look at these familiar words, and I'm sure they're very familiar to you, and try and tease out some of the implications of what it means to actually believe this and what the ramifications are of rejecting Christ as the eternal Word. We're told that the Word of God 
the eternal word, God the Son, is the basis of all reality. The word was with God, that's plurality, and the word was God, that's unity. Unity in diversity, plurality in unity, and there you have an indication immediately of the Trinity, the Trinity. Now, somebody mentioned to me after the first service that they wished they'd had a stiff coffee before the uh, <laughs> beginning of the sermon. <clears throat> I understand that. Um, and uh, it is true that a passage like this causes us and challenges us to think. It's very healthy to think in an unthinking world. It was the atheist Bertrand Russell in the last century who said, as an indictment against Christians, Christians would rather die than think and usually they do. And I want to, uh, first of all, refute that assessment, but also recognize that there is a danger that we as Christians fail to think about some of the most important and critical aspects of our faith and are therefore unable to engage with others about our faith. Well, John's gospel forces us to do this. Sometimes uh, I'm told that I stretch congregations too much, and I'm uh, my home church at Westminster, obviously, uh, I'm on generally safe ground. Uh, but I was speaking in Oxford a few years ago, and uh, having had some wonderful conversations with uh, people after the service, it was the leadership who took me aside and says that was a bit too intellectual for our people. The average reading age is 12. Uh, you know, they're daily mail readers, not the Daily Telegraph, two different uh, newspapers in uh, England. And I said, well, we don't preach and speak to the lowest common denominator. Part of the calling of any ministry of the Word is to help us to, to bring us forward and grow in our understanding of the faith. Otherwise, we may remain babes in the Word. I think very often this is an excuse for uh, ministers who have more intelligent congregations than themselves, and uh, they underestimate their congregation. Well, I don't want to underestimate you or patronize you this morning in any way, shape, or form, and so there will be some challenging things uh, that will be said. Paul challenged Timothy when he wrote to him. He says, Timothy, think over these things that God might give you understanding in all things. The apostle Peter found some of the things Paul had to say difficult to understand, didn't he? He says that uh, uh, men with a corrupt conscience twist these things, even though they may be difficult to understand. Remember the story of the great English revivalist John Wesley in the 18th century. Many of you have heard, who's heard of John Wesley? Most of you have heard of John Wesley. And uh, one day he was confronted with a man who was uh, bragging about his great success in winning lots of people to Christ without what he termed John Wesley's book learning. And uh, Wesley was an Oxford grad, actually, and uh, an intellectual. He read and spoke several languages, uh, was a very bright man. And Wesley's response is noteworthy. He said, Sir, it is testament to the greatness, grace, and power of God that he is able to use your ignorance as well as my learning. And it shows you that in the history of the church, we shouldn't review ignorance or shallowness in any way as a virtue. We should stretch ourselves to think when it comes to what Scripture is trying to teach us. And having given that apologetic for the difficulty of some of the issues I'm going to be dealing with this morning, let's dig into the prologue. And the most staggering aspect of it, which we're going to come to, is that this word, this eternal word, the Son, was 
made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Here we have Christ put forward, the word put forward, as the very beginning of all explanations. Why is there something and not nothing? In the beginning was the word. Now there is an ongoing dispute in the scientific community and the dispute is growing again, not really to my surprise. I was reviewing some uh, book reviews last night uh, concerning the origin of the universe. Did it begin with uh, some infinitesimally small quantum fluctuation of a vacuum, a kind of fuzz from which it was brought into existence and continues to expand? Others now bucking that trend, saying, no, it's a static universe. It must be eternal, and so on and so forth. And scientists will continue to argue these questions. Don't hang your hat on any particular cosmology and say, ah, we must defend that because modern science says so. Rather, we begin with the word of Christ, with the word of God as our universal, as our starting point. This is what John is telling us. If you want to understand life and reality and truth and not end in absurdity and futility, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we de-emphasize this, and inevitably then de-emphasize the doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity progressively collapses. As uh, because of the influence of the Enlightenment in North America, especially during the 18th and 19th century, Unitarianism came to dominate the landscape eventually. Progressively, it was uh, pushed out. It did die a death, at least old Unitarianism. We're seeing it reappear in certain forms again today. But we have to continue to emphasize the full deity of Jesus Christ and therefore the doctrine of the Trinity. In the same way, we have to continue to emphasize in our time, perhaps more than ever before, also the authority of this word, the inscripturated word, as our starting point for knowledge, for understanding. If we do not, the Christian worldview becomes subservient to all kinds of alien premises and it disintegrates. And that is precisely what is happening amongst young people in North America, North America today as over 70% are lost to the church who grew up in Christian homes before the age of 23. Very often because they have not been adequately equipped in God's word to understand what it has to say about these ultimate issues. But as we lose a handle on these things, the faith disintegrates and collapses. But in Genesis chapter 1, we read essentially what John the Apostle is echoing here. It's a self-conscious echoing. Any Jewish reader familiar with the book of beginnings, uh, we get the term Genesis from the Septuagint, Genesios, the book of beginnings, would have recognized the echo of John's gospel of Genesis. And in that great starting point of Scripture, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the term for God used is Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew has a plural ending. There's already an indication in that superlative of the plurality in the being of God. Let us make man in our image. We find then that distinction, plurality, is basic to the being of God along with his unity. Now, from time to time, you doubtless have visitors at your doors modern Unitarians, modern Arians actually, called Jehovah's Witnesses, who will try and tell you that uh, John's gospel refers to a God, 
and not that he was God. He was a God. Well, without going into the details, which I could, and if you want them, you can come to me after the service and I'll give them to you. The Greek phrase there in the Gospel of John, there in our first verse, uh, second verse, our uh, first verse, I beg your pardon, can only be translated according to Greek scholars in the way that we have it here. All those cited by Jehovah's Witness are either not Greek scholars. The only Greek scholar I could find amongst those that they cite in their material uh, was a Unitarian himself. The Old Testament makes abundantly clear that there are no gods besides gods. There are, beside the God, there is not a God. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy 32, 39, I am he and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Isaiah 43, 10, before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Christians are not polytheists because we believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God, three persons, equally ultimate, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So John introduces us to this ultimate ground, the foundations, foundational starting point, the logos, the word. And you wouldn't be here today if it were not for this great statement in John's gospel. What's implicit throughout the Old Testament becomes explicit in the New Testament, <clears throat> even though we do not find the word Trinity used in the New Testament, neither do we find the word fall uh, used uh, in the Old Testament. It is clearly taught that God's being exists as three persons. The, the term Trinity was probably first coined by Tertullian in the third century, and yet it has become on the fringes of Neo-evangelicalism today, increasingly common for people to be raising serious queries about the creeds of the early church. Perhaps the most noted defender of the Trinitarian faith was a man some of you will have heard of called Athanasius. And before your eyes glaze over, Athanasius, who was born in Alexandria in Egypt in AD 297, trained under Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, if it wasn't for him, if you're an evangelical here today, uh, you wouldn't be here. In fact, we wouldn't have creedal orthodoxy in, either, in any part of the Orthodox Catholic Church, the universal church, if it were not for Athanasius. God raised him up to defend this statement of John, of the Trinitarian faith, at a time when there was a very powerful bishop called Arius. And Arius was so influential that he would even gain the support of the Emperor Constantine. And Arianism was beginning to try and suppress, even persecute, Orthodox Christianity. Now, our very salvation depends upon this issue, the prologue of John's Gospel. Don't think this is a peripheral issue, some sort of high-minded, uh, doct doctrinaire, doctrinal abstraction to entertain theologians that doesn't bear relevance to the cross of Christ and your salvation. If there is not the God-man, Jesus Christ, as mediated between God and man, fully God and fully man, two natures without confusion, there is no true incarnation and therefore there is no salvation. That's why Unitarians do not find salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. The most powerful form of Unitarianism today is Islam. I'll touch on that uh, shortly. 
For Arius, Christ was a created being. He was not eternal, and he was not of the same essence of the Father. Now, another early church heresy taught something similar, and Nestorianism held that the Word, the eternal Word, adopted a man called Jesus Christ. That the Word was not made flesh, literally incarnate, two natures without confusion, but, two, uh, but parallel consciousnesses in which the Word gradually had ascendancy over the human side. And this is re- reoccurring, it's reappearing in, uh, even in the guise of modern evangelicalism today. But in 325, the Council of Nicaea was convened. How many of you say the Nicene Creed in your churches? I'd be very interested to know. Put your hands up nice and high. The Nicene. One, two, I can see three hands. Four hands. Now, I think that this is a sad fact in the modern church today that we no longer confess the great creeds of the church. There are creeds. Great patristic creeds of the first five centuries help us identify and understand Christian doctrine. And it was because of their sacrifices that we are here today. Well, the Council of Nicaea was convened in 325 to deal with this question. And Athanasius got up, bold as a lion, and defended the full deity of Christ. He was applauded by his supporters, and his opponents took him aside afterwards and said, the whole world is against you, Athanasius. And Athanasius responded, the whole world is, a, is, the, is the world against Athanasius? So be it, then Athanasius is against the world. He was buried with the epitaph, Athanasius, against the world. Because of Athanasius, we're here today. In the providence of God, Arianism was declared heretical by the Council of Nicaea. And the faith of John's prologue was reaffirmed. But Arius, with powerful friends, was invited to return to the city and to preach his message later on and to spread this anti-Christian doctrine. And when Bishop Alexander heard about this, he fell on his knees with tears, and this is what he prayed. If Arius comes tomorrow to the church, Lord, take me away, and let me not perish with the guilty. But if thou pitiest thy church as thou dost pity it, take Arius away, lest when he enters, heresy enter with him. How many of you know the story of the entrance then of Arius and his procession into the city? This is what happened. The next day, Arius, in triumphal procession, gloating, made his way into the city towards a large church to preach to crowds. Suddenly, the procession was halted because Arius was gripped with serious abdominal pain, and he left the group, went uh, over the brow of a hill to relieve himself. And after waiting a while, the procession waited, and it waited, and it waited. He wasn't coming back, so some of his cohorts went over to try and find Arius, and they did find him headlong in a sewage ditch, dead. That was the end of Arius. I think it was a providential ending, even though it was a grim one. In AD 373, about the age of 75, Athanasius died quietly in his home and was gathered to his fathers. And that's why we have the confessing church as we have it today. And because of this plurality of God's being, 
We have the possibility that the Word could be made flesh. Now, we don't arrive at this great doctrine, this foundation of our faith, through philosophical speculation. We don't sit down and say, now let me meditate on being and non-being and on the doctrine of God and hope to arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity. It's given to us by revelation. The Word was with God and the Word was God. There is identity and there is plurality. Now, of course, we see in Scripture that other people did hear the voice of God. Moses saw his back, whatever that meant. Jacob wrestled with an angel who identified himself as wonderful. Abraham debated the fate of Sodom with the Lord, with Jehovah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appear in the, fire, in the fiery furnace with one who looked like the Son of Man. So we see glimpses, we see inferences, we see indications of this plurality in God's being in the Old Testament. But here, finally, in Jesus Christ, it is unveiled, John tells us. There's a wonderful reference to this in Proverbs chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, flick there with me. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 gives us a hint at the plurality of God's being in the Old Testament, as wisdom is personified. Let me read that to you, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields, or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the foundations of the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. We find these indications. Jesus cites Psalm 110 favorably in this light. The Lord, in reference to the Godhead and his own identity, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The crescendo of John's prologue, though, is in this great statement about this word, this eternal word being made flesh. So that we're not dealing simply with an abstraction, with an idea, with a concept, but that this word was embodied. Now, this morning I am using words to try and communicate to you, and hopefully some of them are registering, and uh, some of those words and the way I'm putting them together, you are understanding. Now, what I'm doing is I have thoughts in my mind, and I'm trying to convey those thoughts to you so that you know them with words. And I'm hoping that nothing is lost in translation, as it were. So from here to here, the meaning is not being lost. Now, Augustine, one of the other great fathers of the church, tried to help picture the incarnation like that. He said, God, the Word, is like the thought of God that takes form, just as our words take form, so that they can be communicated. We don't have a non-communicating abstract deity, but a communicating God, the Word. And when Christ is expressed, 
In him, Scripture says, dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The way John introduces the word then, we immediately see the centrality of the idea of relationship. That our God is a relational God. That he's a personal God. He's a God who is communicating and he is Of course, the word himself is literally the Greek was with God, reads he was toward God. Christ was forever turned towards God in fellowship and relationship. The Father and the Son are not identical, but they are one. And the word, the tense of that term became flesh indicates that at a point in time he took flesh. And the word that John selects for for flesh is one of the most crude, one of the most blunt terms you can use for human nature. He took an earthly, fleshy, human, fully human body. With all of the limitations that come with having a human body, being human. In fact, the verb signifies that John tells us he pitched his tent amongst us. So when the Jewish audience was reading this, they would have immediately understood the allusion back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the imminence of God's presence was felt in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. So John literally says, he made his tent with us. He pitched his tent with us in Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable thought, and it's something that's been a, was an offense and continues to be a total offense to pagan thinking. We note the words of one scholar who refers to two very well-known Greek thinkers, Plotinus and Porphyroi. This is what this particular scholar notes. Plotinus and Porphyroi attack Christianity for its downward movement, the incarnation whereby God became flesh in order to restore man to his rightful place on earth as God's vice-regent, called to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth under God. Rather than a concern with the earth, the downward motive, theirs was an insistence on an abandonment of the earth in an upward movement. The pagans were concerned about the deification of man, of men becoming gods and being worshipped as gods. And that the goal of human life was to shed the body for many in Greek philosophy, and in an upward movement be liberated from all those restrictions of being part of a physical, material realm. And many of these ideas in Greek philosophy have filtered down actually fairly early in the history of the church and to some degree have remained with us in different forms. We often identify this as Neoplatonism. Tell that to your granny over breakfast tomorrow. And In this influential form of thought, the basic idea, put very, very simply, is that the ancient Greeks conceived of the world as existing in two essential substances. Spirit and ideas or forms and matter, material, the uh, substance, if you like, of the world. And that these two were alien, that is, they were not necessarily related because there was no sovereign God who had a purpose and a destiny and a creation a a, a teleology, a a direction for all things. Rather, the challenge was to find out how one could relate these two 
ideas and substances into some kind of meaningful philosophy. But these thinkers, though, the realm of the mind or the spirit or ideas were the more true and the more important than the material world. And so the superior individual was the one who realized the irrelevant nature of the creation of the material world or even its illusory nature. The goal was to be pure mind, pure idea, pure spirit. And all the value was placed on the spiritual. Now, I want you to hear these terms. The spiritual. Creation, therefore, and the body and history and the future were depreciated as almost irrelevant. Truly spiritual people would seek a pure existence unencumbered by the world. And this influenced the church very early and gave us various forms of asceticism and mysticism. In the Eastern Church, for example, as it spread through uh, what we today call Syria and, and Mesopotamia and on out even further east into China, this was, there was a very strong Greek philosophical element. There was a renouncing of the material world for the soul, which viewed the body as a prison. And this also infected the Western Church, particularly during the medieval period. And those who suffered most from this doctrine have been women. And I give you a couple of examples, because Plato and Aristotle, in their thinking, two Greek philosophers, believed that women had less soul than men. Aristotle thought that women were misbegotten males. They weren't as rational. They weren't uh, as intellectual. They weren't as enlightened. They were more sensual, more material, and therefore inferior. And this idea resurfaced very strongly in Islam. One of the reasons why you see uh, Islam with its particular approach to women is actually the influence that Greek philosophy played in their understanding of God. Women in Islam are usually treated with a degree of contempt. Enlightenment rationalism in the West was equally hostile to a certain degree. Men were superior, rational, and spiritual. Women seen as coarse, materialistic, sensual. And in Islam, a woman is not covered from head to toe to protect her dignity. She's covered to prevent men from lusting after her. It's her fault if that happens. That's why she must cover herself completely. You can have some sympathy for some of the elements of feminism when you understand the, what the Enlightenment taught about and understood with regard to women and what Islam teaches with respect to women. However... With the Reformation, and particularly with the Puritans, the dignity and honor of women was restored, much to the confusion of many people who think of Puritanism as some sort of repressive uh, anti-woman movement, on the contrary. But this influence on the church was so pervasive, and to a degree means, remains pervasive, that marriage was denounced. Sexual intimacy in marriage was reviewed very often as at least the lesser way of marriage, unclean, even evil. And the medieval era being impacted with this kind of thinking sought a kind of introspection where the development of monastic thinking and monks and uh, convents and so forth thought that the way to be holy, the way to be spiritual was to withdraw from the world, from creation. Surround yourself with cold, bare walls and there pray and perhaps punish the body as well to a degree. But you know, the problem of holiness is never when you're on your own. It's when you're 
interacting with others that it's most difficult to be holy. In a sense, if you've just got a pen, a piece of paper, and four walls, it's much more easy to restrain the passions than living in God's creation, living in his world. The medieval era then influenced the Western church in this way, and to be a pure spirit, the best route was to forsake all bodily desires and have the Greek or Stoic ideal of a passionless God. One monk, Diocles, says that desire was beast-like and anger demon-like, and yet Jesus got angry. Do you think he was calm and placid when he cleared out the temple with a whip? When Paul said that he burned with indignation over those who were caused to stumble by false teachers, Scripture says, in your anger do not sin, but it doesn't tell us that anger is wrong. Righteous anger is very important. A lot of Christians don't get angry enough about the way things are. And we rock ourselves to sleep oftentimes in the midst of a world that desperately needs us to engender some form of righteous indignation. Anger then, emotion, are not evil things. When I was living in the UK some years ago, I actually knew a man in Wales who began to become more and more aesthetic in his thinking, started to dress like a monk, in the end, he castrated himself in order to control, he thought, his own sexual desires. And this is the kind of folly that stems from believing that the goal of the Christian life is release from this world, is the release of the soul from the body. We are whole persons. We don't artificially separate these things. You see, if we think that if you can turn inward and just have a spiritual life, that there you will find holiness and righteousness. We've misunderstood the scriptural teaching of the fall, which tells us that every aspect of our being has been infected and effected because of sin. Not just the body. So if you turn to the inner, the most inner part of your being, there you will come to the very seat of pride and rebellion and sin. That's why Jesus says the need of human beings is not to be uh, re-educated, stoically disciplined. It's to be remade, to be regenerated, to be born again. That that's what we need is new birth so that our entire being is transformed. We are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. The creation itself is not evil. On day six of creation, God pronounced his creation very good. And even though it's been marred because of sin, it's not evil in and of itself. It's God's, and he is redeeming and restoring it. So if you think that there is virtue in not bathing or not eating meat or not enjoying sexual intimacy in the context of marriage, then you're pagan in your thinking, not Christian. Today, we've been so influenced by this that we talk about souls in heaven, don't we? Now, we know what we mean. I know we know what we mean when we say, have we, we need to win souls, but it's not helpful language. The godly person is often seen in the modern church as one who is passionless. You know, never gets too upset, never gets too angry, floats through life, always kind and polite, always with a smile. 
Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. But that does not define holiness, being of a sanguine personality. That's not holiness. Holiness is about obedience to the righteous standards of God, being remade in Jesus Christ. It's led us to think in terms of spiritual things being things that go on in the church. Those are spiritual matters. So to have a spiritual calling, you have to be a minister, you have to be a preacher, you have to be a pastor, an apologist, or a historian like Dr. Haken. That's holy. Spiritual. Do you know what? That's pagan thinking too. There is no sacred secular divide where all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. If you are a banker, a butcher, a candlestick maker, your calling is a holy one under God. For this entire world belongs to him. It's not more spiritual to be a pastor. It's not more holy to be a pastor. That's one calling amongst many callings that God will call us into, but this is the way we've often come to think about life. We've often minimized the importance of good music and art and singing and dance and minimized the value of the body and marriage and so forth. Like Greek philosophy, we've tended to think of history and world affairs as finally irrelevant and we become pessimistic about the future. It's all doom and gloom. How is Middle Eastern oil going to affect your future and all these kind of books that fill the Christian shelves today about pending disaster everywhere. And then we think in terms of not the kingdom of God and his righteousness and praying the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, we think about escape from the world as quickly as possible. History is unimportant. The future is unimportant. How can we get out of here as quickly as we can with Tim LaHaye? Now, <laughs> St. John contradicts this in his prologue. Totally contradicts it. You're going to say to me, Joe, how does he contradict this? Well, he says that, but that Christ is incarnate in flesh and blood. He steps into history. He's incarnate. He becomes a human being. Not some Bartian superhistorical event, but a substantial, physical, real, historical incarnation into history, into a stable, into an animal feeding trough. And he grows up in obedience to his mum and dad. And he walks the dirt in the wilderness. And he's baptized in water. And he gets hungry. And he gets thirsty. And he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. And he, he sweats drops of blood in his emotional agony in Gethsemane. He's a human being. And then he is tortured and dies, having performed numerous signs, which some of which we're going to look at, indicating what were signs of healing in these miracles were signs of God's intention for what? For his creation. It's renewal, it's redemption, it's recreation. And he's raised in a physical body. You're not going to escape the body, my friends, at the resurrection. You know that. Sorry about that. You'll be free from 
the imperfections that you've been uh, saddled with, but you're not going to be free from the body. Jesus is raised physically. And when the disciples looked at this man, who was clearly a man, and then he could stand in a boat and rebuke the wind and the waves and raise Lazarus, who stunk in the tomb after four days, they said, who is this man? Who is he? That was the question. John answers it for us here in John chapter 1. The word was made flesh and dwelled amongst us. We have seen. We've seen his glory. Fully man, fully God. And the incarnation is only plausible and possible because God's image is in you. That is, God's reflection was already in man. That's how God could become a man. Why didn't God become a wolf? As totemism in North American Indian religion puts it. God's expressing themselves through the spirits, expressing themselves through the animal kingdom and so forth. You know why? Because Scripture doesn't tell us that the image of God was in animals. The image of God was in men and women. C.S. Lewis illustrated it this way. He says, if I've got a cube in three dimensions, concentrate now. In two dimensions, what do you have? Three-dimensional cube in two dimensions is a square, not a trick question. So, if I were to shine light on a cube here and project the image onto here, you would see a square in two dimensions and a cube here in three dimensions without contradiction, both at the same time. So when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he was in a sense saying, if you've seen the square, you've seen the cube. And that's true. You may have only seen one dimension of it. But there is an unveiling of God in Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself then what it means to be a person in the truest sense of the term? Because John's gospel right now in this prologue reveals the relational nature of a personal God with the qualities of emotion, of intellect, of will. And if there are no relationships in the being of God, then these things have no way of starting, of getting off the ground. This is the most difficult part of my sermon now, and so I want you to concentrate for these last few minutes. This is difficult. But when you consider the relationship that Christ sustains to his Father, what is it? It's the relationship of Father and Son, eternally so, begotten, not made. So the Father is only the Father because of the relationship He sustains to the Son. And the Son is the Son because of the eternal relationship He's sustained to His Father. And the Holy Spirit is the medium through which the love between Father and Son, the person of the Holy Spirit, provides space between Father and Son and communicates the love of the Father and the Son mutually for one another. Now, when you look at this idea, this teaching of Scripture, in terms of the basic aspects of our lives, it becomes very, very important that we grasp this. This is the problem that every Unitarian has who denies the sonship, the deity of Jesus Christ, and therefore denies the Trinity. And the Apostle John, in his letters, identifies such thinking as Antichrist. 
Let me ask you this question that I often pose to Muslims. Who was Allah loving before he created the world? If God is a singularity, if there's no plurality in his being, if there's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was Allah loving before he created the world? If God is love, as our scripture says, you see, the Bible says, we will often say as Christians, God is love. That's a definition of his being. It's one of them. How is that possible before creation if God's got nothing and no one to love? Have you ever thought about that? God is love. That is, he is self-referencing. He can be defined by himself only because there is plurality in his being. You see, if you were to say to me, uh, I love my mother, and I asked you, well, how do you know that? You'd probably be very confused, wonder what I was talking about. Well, let me ask you an even more basic question. How do you know you are a self, an individual, an individual person? Can I suggest how you know this? Because your experience tells you there are other things that are not you. Other people. The floor, the bench, the ceiling, the external world. Your experience dictates to you, even if you don't reflect on it, that there are other selves, even though you can't prove it directly, by the way. I mean, how do I know without the being of God, that you're not just a figment of my imagination this morning. I'm actually preaching to myself. (laughs) Sometimes I feel I may as well be in some context. (laughs) Right? We, We have to recognize, and we do recognize, that we are a self because there is distinction in our experience. That's how you know you're a self. Well, if God is a singularity... Who does he love? In other words, he can have no moral character because there's no subject-object relation. If if I say to my wife, I love you, she is the subject. She's the object of my love, and I'm the the subject who is expressing love. There is subject-object space and relationship so that love can exist. If I were to say, I know him, I can only know him because he is the subject of my knowledge. He's the object of my knowledge. I'm the subject that knows. There is space. Therefore, knowledge can arise. In other words, a God who is not triune can know nothing, does not even know that it's created. In fact, the Greeks thought this. uh, The reason they have a cold, passionless, unmoved mover without definition is because their God doesn't even know it's created the world. That's pantheism. Creation becomes an emanation of an impersonal principle because there's no personality. Do you know, only Christianity, of all the world's faiths, gives you an infinite personal. Islam does not give you that. Only Christianity gives you the infinite personal. Outside of this, there is only the impersonal. Therefore, our God is relational. That's why our God can be known. The God of Islam cannot be known. Pantheistic conceptions of God cannot be known. What's ultimate in Buddhism is non-being. In Hinduism, nothingness. But our God relates. He speaks. He reveals. Because he is what he is in himself. I know that's difficult. That's why I've got a book table out there, which explains it all in more detail for you. So please avail yourself of it after the service. Let me wrap up my thoughts now as... Our humanity urges us toward the dining room. If we do not accept 
If we reject the Christ, you see, John tells us he came to his own. His own did not recognize him. His own did not receive him. If we don't recognize and receive the word, the Logos, the Christ, who is God incarnate, then we do not get rid, friends, of the need for a word, a starting point, a beginning for knowledge and understanding. You do not rid yourself of a word that speaks authoritatively if you reject the word of Christ. All people do is they replace it with another word and actually with a counterfeit incarnation of some sort or another. You see, the basic sin of humankind from the beginning was what? What was the temptation? You will be as God. Knowing, actually defining for yourself. Right from wrong, truth from falsehood. Be the source of definition of right and wrong. Truth from falsehood. You don't need to pay attention to God. To his word. Speak your own word. God may have more experience than you. But you can speak a competing word to the word of God. Change reality. You know why we're obsessed with virtual reality today? And cyberspace and alternate identities on the internet and so forth. It's the urge to redefine and remake reality after our own image. And technology helps provide the means by which we can escape reality it's interesting, isn't it, how people will come in from work, sit down on the couch, and watch people sat down on the couch <laughs> on television in an unreal reality show. Get your head around that. Because we don't want to face reality as it really is. You replace the word, you don't eliminate it. When you reject God, all that happens is we put man's idea and imagination in the place of God's word, and then we try and incarnate that idea on the world. That's exactly what Greek philosophy was all about. It continues to be what philosophy is about in all of its forms. And this is true of all antiquity. Egypt, Pharaoh, great house, considered to be the pyramid Toward God, the pyramid facing downward was the, represented the deification of men as God. Followed by the Babylonian Empire. Kings and state rulers were worshipped as gods. What did Nebuchadnezzar do in the Old Testament that our three friends would not bow down to? He set up a statue of himself to be worshipped. This is logical. You know, ancient states were much more logical than modern states. We disguise it now. We use a different kind of language. But in antiquity, they're at least honest about their objectives. About They were logical in their conclusions, in their understanding of the state. It became a divine order. The same thing happened in the Medo-Persian Empire, ruled by men who thought they were and should be prayed to as gods. The Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, well known for its conception of the man-gods, you know, I once uh, heard an atheist saying that um, he was just an atheist with respect to one more God. He said, there are all these gods, Zeus, and 
Aphrodite and so on and so forth. And he was just an atheist with respect to one more, the God of the Bible. This is absurd. These gods of paganism are nothing but expressions of, they are deified men, they are expressions of personifications of the powers of nature. All of these eight, uh, religions in antiquity believed in some form of totemism, an evolving universe where the gods themselves evolved out of the chaos. There is no comparison between these gods, small g, and the God of Scripture. Modern people, we have generally dropped the term God when we describe man's ideas or man's states, although Hegel did refer to the, the state as God on earth or God walking the earth. But the idea that man should impose his ideas on the world to give it meaning, because it's without meaning, there's no word, there's no logos, it's a meaningless world. So what do you do, friends, if there's no God and no meaning and no purpose? Philosophically, you can't live with that. So you have to create it by human fiat. You have to impose your idea of reality upon the world. In other words, what we do today is we say we are going to predestine reality over and against any word that God has spoken. That's what social sciences are all about today. Remaking man in the image of the intellectual elite, the philosopher kings. It's a very old idea. It's just come back in a slightly different form. Remake the definition of human beings in terms of slime that evolved rationality. Remake the definition, therefore, of life and its value. Remake the definition of the family and marriage. Remake all law in terms of man's image of himself as God, a replacement word. This is praxeology. It basically means God's not sovereign, and we must order the world of ideas and predestine the world through man's word. I could say more. I've got no time to do so. Suffice it to say, friends, that man is doomed in his effort to remake the world by his word. doesn't matter what Obama said in Cairo. He also is incapable of remaking the world in terms of his word. God represented revealed to us in God the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And that life is the light of men. There is no other source of truth. There is no other incarnation in which we can rely. It is the incarnation of the word, the Alpha, the Omega, made flesh. Known unto the Lord, the scripture tells us are all his works from the beginning of the world. This is his world. It's his history. Christ governs it. And his calling upon his people and upon his church is to be part of his work of the kingdom as we take the gospel to all the nations. It's God's idea that will ultimately and finally govern history because it's his creation. And into all of that, John tells us that we are called, there in the prologue, children of God. And that's another relational term. This is not about abstract ideas. This is about you and me knowing and understanding that we are children of the living God, the personal God of Scripture, who knows the hairs of your head, 
when you sit and when you rise, who perceives your thoughts from afar, who is intimately acquainted with all of your ways, who bottles the tears of our sorrows. The providential God of Scripture who governs all things in terms of His Word. We're His children. That's what it means to be a child of God with God as our Father so that Jesus could teach us to pray, Abba, Father. We are therefore made princes with God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.